Hello everybody, it's Alice here. Welcome to another episode of Poetry Says. Coming to you from another very quiet weekend here in lockdown in Melbourne. But this week I got to transport myself mentally, at least, up to Brisbane to talk with Liam Fernie, who I'd never had the pleasure of actually speaking with before. But Liam is somebody who I feel like is a bit of a bit of a brother in poetry. I feel like there's a line between our work and what we're trying to do with poems and we get into that a little bit in this interview. If you don't know Liam's work, his most recent book is called Hot Take and that's the one that we talk about mostly in this interview. That came out with Hunter Publishers in 2018. His previous book before that came out in 2016, also from Hunter. And that one was shortlisted for the PM's Literary Award and the Judith Wright Award. So, yeah, we start out in this chat by talking about Brisbane, Melbourne, the differences between the poetry scenes in those two cities and the role of the Queensland Poetry Festival up in Brisbane. And from there, we go in all kinds of different directions One of the threads that we pick up on is knowing when you're right and when you should ignore the advice of others and when you really need to actually listen to other people's feedback on your work. We dig a little bit into the particular anxiety of what it is to be living and writing right now. And yeah, then we get into, as I mentioned, that those connections between our poetic projects and this is where I get a little bit passionate and sweary so if you have sensitive ears listening maybe uh maybe cover their ears at this point um because yeah i think it's it's really funny and interesting that there are these poems that i feel that i feel came to me and then ended up with liam i just think that's that's really fascinating i don't know if he sees it that way or not we also talk about whether liam sees himself as part of a school of poetry and towards the end Because Liam is an avid listener to Poetry Says, which is so great, we talk about some of the threads in previous episodes that he's agreed with and in some cases disagreed with. And the role of this conversation between poets working in Australia today, what we have in common, what's shared and what isn't shared and where those connections exist and where they're lacking So there's plenty in here, and I really hope you get as much out of it as I did. Thanks so much for listening. In in Brisbane, the QPF kind of looms over everything, and I I mean it's been a it's been an incredible institution that's done a lot for a lot of poets, myself included, you know, and, and it's well-funded and, you know, it's doing it's doing good stuff even in the pandemic. But I am always just concerned about the centralisation of, of power and not entirely because necessarily the people that, you know, might be running a festival or anything um, might be nefarious or anything, but I just think that, you get a better culture with kinds of diversity and more people doing different things. And Mm. I think, 
you see in Melbourne, for instance, where things like sick leave and people willing to start things because there is a black hole, there is a lack of substantial, coherent, critical mass of sort of funded poetry at the centre. So people have to do different things. And I think, you know, it, it, so the QPF does keep a baseline of, Queen, of Brisbane poetry, Queensland poetry, very healthy. I do think that you need other spaces that are kind of outside that and different to that that can exist alongside, parallel, supportive of, but are kind of independent of. Yeah, yeah, I think that's really true. But I feel like it's also a factor of population too, right? Like, yeah, you know, um, back in Canberra there was there was one reading series that was run, run by Jeff Page for the whole time I lived there. And then I think now there there might be a second one or maybe it's replaced the reading series that he ran. But the fact is if you ran more than two poetry readings in Canberra, you just it would be the same group of people going to the same kind of thing. And that's the beautiful thing about just having, you know, just like just more people. <laughs> it's like you can have, you know, different groups doing different things, different focuses and yeah. Yeah, and I mean when I, when I when I think about Melbourne poetry and what Melbourne poetry is to me, that's that's I mean it's easy for me to think about that as being the world, but it's essentially, you know, my friends and 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 their friends of friends and stuff, but it's you know, a core nucleus of that is the my my friends, um, you know, from people like Michael and Anne and Ella and Tim and Jess and Bonnie and all of those people like but that's not everything of poetry in in Melbourne yeah it 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 extends well beyond that which is which is one of the great things about it like I miss the kinds of um discussions I can have at the pub in Melbourne with my friends that I just don't get up here but I so much of writing is just being on your own and sitting at a computer and working that you know that's that's the most important stuff. And I think, you know, in the age of the internet, like I can be chatting on messenger to whoever, wherever, whatever I feel like it, but I do. I'm, and I mean, the pandemic makes it worse. I, my, my, some of my family live in Geelong and I, between them and all my friends in Melbourne, it's been a long time since I feel like I've seen anyone or been anywhere. Mm. Yep, strongly relate, strongly relate to that. You mentioned, you know, the work of being a poet and when we were chatting, setting up the interview, you reminded me that you work as a press secretary. I'm really interested in how that work feeds into your poetry because I I feel like it must, the type of thinking, the type of use of language that would be involved in a job like that, I feel as if I can see reflections of that in your written work in your poetry I wonder if you see a connection there or if for you it's like that's my job and poetry happens over here no I think like I mean it depends like as you sort of advance I find I've spent more time sort of managing teams this year or in the last 18 months and you spend less time doing the sort of the grunt work but you know, I mean, when you're when you're a press secretary, when you're a comms manager, you're thinking in terms of, you're thinking. Well, I mean, to to borrow Pound's phrase, news that stays news. 
you know, you're you're trying to craft language that that stands out, um, that people will remember, that's eye catching. One of the one of the little boosts to my professional career once was coming up with a with a Christmas road safety campaign for the Queensland Police called Crashes Kill Christmas. Um, and I mean, I I work intensively with like alliteration and the the sounds of phrases so you you've got this skill set outside of work that you're always honing that that does feed back into your professional work and then I mean I I guess I write about language a lot the way we use language the way you know phrases come to influence people what they come to mean for us how they cause us to act and so when you, I, I think that they, like, I do think that they are both connected in my case. And then the other thing is I write about what's, what's around me, what's in my head, what I'm seeing and what I'm doing. And if, you know, the language of, of, of say diabetes is around me, then there's a chance that that will come into a poem just because it's there. Also, because I think it shapes so much of work, shapes so much of my of my life, of, of anyone's life, really. I mean, you, you know, you get up at whatever time, you go away to your job, you, you come home. I mean, these days of social media management, you're sort of consciously, actively, aggressively working to separate work and not work. But it's, it's, it's just around you. And I guess through that kind of osmosis, it becomes part of the poems. Yeah, I I completely share that perspective. I feel as if if I had to write a campaign that was called Crashes Killed Christmas, Crashes Killed Christmas, I would be like, well, I mean, I'm going to use that as in a poem. Like, that's mine. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not leaving that with you guys. Um, yeah, and and I feel as if we, we share an understanding that poems can hold pretty much anything. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I've um, I was thinking about this. It was one of the things I was thinking about um, in the podcast, and one of the things I think is that you know, a poem can be whatever, maybe not whatever you say it is, because you can't just say something's a poem and it becomes a poem. But you can make pretty much anything into a poem, I think. And the force with which you make that gesture, the force with which you um, force that into a poem can, you know, can, can make it a poem. I mean, I've, I've had this conversation with some people about, uh, Charmaine Paper Talk Green's, um, most recent work, which I think universally people, people like and admire, Mm. but some people might consider the, the more epistolary parts of the book to, to not quite be poems or to be work that, is adjacent to the poems, but it is in a book of poetry. But to me, those letters are very much poems because Charmaine put them in a book of poetry and it's a good book. And she kind of, in writing a really good book that is compelling, she, she turns that into poetry. Another example would be, I think probably from Kate Lilly's last book. Um, I can't think of the, the sort of essay like, essay that's in that book but I kind of I'm kind of of the belief that if you if you force it into a book of poetry 
it becomes poetry and then and then in doing that it sort of reminds people it reinforces the the potentials of poetry the potentials of poetry to be what you want it to be i mean that's obviously shaky because you could just put anything in a poem and then it just be a bad poem um, <laughs> yes you know, yes i think i've done that often yeah yeah like and i i think that you know what makes the letters in in Charmaine's book poems is probably because that's a really good book. Um, it's a really compelling, um, interesting book. And I think in, in, in Charmaine's case, it's probably the radical case for the letters is probably supported by the way she uses um, Indigenous language, the way that, and the things that that forces on the reader, which are, you know, in some ways radical. You know, in that in that book, I don't know if you've read it, but you're constantly going through a pr- process as a, as a non-language speaker of translation, you know, you're, you're flicking back and forth between a glossary to, to put these, the, the, the poems together and understand what they're saying. And then you're also working to hear, to say, to hear really unf- words in language that are really unfamiliar and constellations of, of, of letters of sounds that are unfamiliar. So I think, those two things probably work in concert to make, to, to, to reinforce the, the epistolary parts of the, the, the book as poems. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, yeah, I really like the way that you phrase that, like the force with which you insist that something is a poem can kind of, can make it so, but also, yeah, the, the work needs to be there. It needs to be, needs to be good work. I remember um, Bonnie Cassidy sort of sitting me down at one point and being like, all right, look, Alice, like I, I get that you've got all this found text, but it needs to be a good poem. <laughs> yeah. She obviously said it in a much kinder way than that, but I needed to hear that because there was a period during which I just thought that anything that I captured was like worthwhile and 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 could be made into a poem. But um, I, and think, I mean, I th- yeah. Well, I, I think we're, yeah, you know, I think an example, and I, I really, I can't really go too far on, um, you know, beating up on, say, Kenny Goldsmith's poetics because I've not read a lot of his work. But at some point, it would seem like he's just doing the same thing over and over and over again. And, you know, then does, does the gesture. Does the gesture lose luster because you trot it out again and again and again? And I, I, I don't know. Though, I mean, I've had, and I can't remember if you've had him on the podcast, and I haven't listened to a lot of the earlier ones, so I'd definitely go back to listen. But I've had fascinating conversations with AJ Carruthers before about um, his poetic process and his understanding of the poetic process and what's so fascinating to me is that it's so alien in so many ways from the way I think about poetry and that's not to, to delegitimize it at all, but to sort of point to the fact that it's such a, you know, poetry now is a, is a galaxy where you can do um, many different things. Though again, I mean, I, I, I would agree completely with, with with Bonnie, um, you know, it comes down to it whether or not it's it's good, it's good work, it's strong work. Mm. But then, 
sometimes that's really hard to judge. You've just got to go on your nerve. I've got a, a poem that I hope to include in my next book that's, that's nothing but a, a, a photo I took of a, a, a single shot in um, uh, John Woo's movie Hard Boiled um, called Tequila Reading the Loading Dog in Hard Boiled. Because I saw this fast, the Hard Boiled's a um, heroic bloodshed Hong Kong crime movie, and uh, Tequila, the protagonist, is in a in a library and he pulls a book off the shelf and it's um the collected stories of um, Henry Lawson. No um, way. Yeah, and <laughs> like, and that's a that's a book that we had on our shelves on my shelves that my dad had when I was a kid, and I just saw that and I was like. That seems like a poem. I mean, it's obviously an image from a movie and, you know, I've written poems that just simply describe a single image from a movie on the screen. But in this case, it seemed like the poem was the picture um, probably and the relationship between the picture and the title probably maybe helps make it a poem. But then, I mean, editors keep rejecting that poem, so, you know, maybe they're right and I'm wrong. But I love that, though. I love, like, yeah, God. There well, are those poems that you just feel so strongly about. You're like, no, I'm going to insist on this. Well, yeah, and I think that's something, I, I mean, I was, was saying at the beginning, sometimes when I feel like I'm in a dialogue with, with this podcast and, 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 and with you, and I, and I really, really enjoy this podcast, is, you know, that it's a constant thing where you've got to, You've got to trust. You've got to be absolutely certain of your own vision. But at the same time, other people aren't wrong. And at the same time, some other people are wrong. And it's sifting through that feedback and working out what you want to, what you want to stand behind and what, what you think other people are right about. And you just believe in it because you're too close to it or something. Mm, Yeah, Um, absolutely. I mean, I was, I was looking through an old, I was trying to find a, a previous draft of a poem and I was looking through um, my editor's notes um, for Hot Take and um, my editor, um, shout out to Jess Wilkinson, didn't like the title of the book. And I mean, I would be inclined to listen to Jess eight times out of ten probably, you know, but for whatever reason, I stuck strongly to to my guns on that title. Um, though, to be honest, I'm not entirely, I think I'm right, but I'm not a hundred percent certain that I am, but I think it's, it's always a balance between, you know, listening to your readers and your editors and, and, and having an absolute belief in what you're doing. You know, I mean, Rumbo's dictum that one must be absolutely modern is never, never far from my thinking the the notion of continuing to push poetry further and further is is never far from my thinking but at the same time you know some avant-garde work runs the risk of just being of a moment of not being timeless of you know, being gimmicky to conversation I have with a with another um well with Bonnie Cassidy um around hashtags in some of my poems and I remember taking out a bunch but then thinking you know on other ones you know 
hashtags are a, a convention that, uh, that that have embedded them. They're an interesting way our language is mutating, and they seem to me like they might be here to stay rather than being gimmicky. But yeah. I'm 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 not certain I'm right about that. Well, we can't be, and and yeah, that's why I think the title "Hot Take" is so perfect, is because it it represents this sort of both and position of like a hot take is something that is um, it's a hot take because it happens quickly and, and without much thought, and it probably only is relevant for that time. But like some hot takes are right. <laughs> Sometimes yeah, no, they I think are. we. I think I, in part of what that title is getting at is I think we invest too much in you know what what we think right now as though we haven't had a we haven't as a as a as a broad culture as a species we haven't already done a lot of thinking um Mm. you know and some of that's been very very good and we shouldn't just jettison all of that for the moment and that's not to say that we live in a, a perfect world I mean we quite clearly don't but there's plenty of knowledge in the world that that we can refer to, that we can – and I just wonder – and also the idea that we should all have an immediate opinion on every single thing that happens all of the time when – I mean, the machine, the, the, the that's, a, that's a corporate construct set up to design to – to 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 monetize clicks it's designed to it's designed to make us click on things to 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 continue to be part of the machine where we consume news as though as though it were another product um and i you know news shouldn't be strictly a spectator sport i don't think in the way it is yeah um I just I so strongly agree with so much of that. I really I really spend so much time trying to resist the egotism of the moment and just this this narrative that like um obviously 2020 very bad. Very bad. Do not like unsubscribe. But like it's not it can't possibly be that we us now just happen to be the most hard done by version of humanity ever. Like there's so much egotism in that so much like navel gazing self-pity like i i think i think we're the most and maybe hard done by is a bad word but i think that this is unique in that for i mean it, it it extends beyond say our generation though you know it is probably the worst thing that it, i mean my six-year-old niece said to me this is the worst thing that's ever happened to me and i was mm-hmm. like well that's this is probably the worst thing that's ever happened to me as well. Mm. Um, and then it's probably also the worst thing that happened to my mum. But, I mean, unquestionably it would have been worse to live, you know, in 1943, even in this country. I, You know, I the privation, the, the fear, the – I mean, if you were watching the, the fall of Singapore or – you know the the advancement of the the Japanese army through um, Southeast Asia. I mean, that would be um, really scary. I imagine, um, in a way, 
you know, in a way that COVID-19 just, just isn't. Um, but I mean, we're also, you know, coming out of a, out of a summer of unprecedented bushfires and destruction that I think, um, I, I speak for myself, but I, I, I would imagine that there is some, some level of existential terror that that created in, in some huge portion of Australians that, you know, I wonder, you know, I think it's probably certainly comparable to the anxiety that certain places felt um, about the nuclear arms race in the 1960s. I don't know. It's complicated. I mean, we live in a country, Alice, where, you know, we, we live in a post-apocalyptic country. We live in a country where people live in a post-apocalyptic world, mm-hmm. um, just not settlers. Um, so yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right that we can't feel that hard done by, but then we also can't entirely leave jettison our own existence. Does that make sense? It does. Yeah. And you know, I, I think I definitely have a tendency to go the latter and just be like, no, no, this is, this is, I'm not important. This isn't important. You know, it's like. And, and and skipping over the part where I do have like a very personal, you know, like like hearing that your niece said that, like that really breaks my heart, you know. And I think about my own nieces and nephews who are also going through it in their in their particular ways. And yeah, well, I mean, it's not all bad. The younger one, the three year old one, thinks it's the best thing that's ever happened because all her family's home all the time. Aww. Her little sister, who's her sun and her moon is home all the time. So she thinks it's literally the best thing that's ever happened. <laughs> that's amazing. Um, but I mean, and, and I think it's, again, and, and, and this is, this is a hugely first world problem that, that um, we all created and is all, you know, a huge part of what may be our demise, but we've become so accustomed to, um, to the world being a place where we can all go. We, you know, I, one of the reasons why I work, you know, and, and don't write, say work part-time, write part-time is because I love to travel. And, you know, that two to three weeks um, of the year that I get to be in another country are incredibly important to me. And I just, we just can't do that now. I can't even see my family or my friends in Melbourne. And uh, look, I mean, my wife um, is from the States, um, we were supposed to go back at, at Christmas and well, I mean, we're, we're expecting a baby in October and I mean, Sarah's mother would love to come here, but I mean, that's just, we just can't leave at the moment. Um, wow. Yeah. I have a friend in that exact same position, same due date even. Yeah. It's, it's, um, it's, uh, yeah, it's, it, man, I mean, that's, that is setting aside the the ethical um, considerations, which I've obviously decided to set aside of um, you know global travel and its its impact on the environment. But you know we we, we, we are so privileged. Some of us are so privileged and lucky to be able to live in a in a in a very small world, and that's been that's been taken away from us. Mm. <laughs> that's really really true. Um, I want to swerve a little bit in, into a, something in a, a feel where we're sort of talking about and, and sort of 
maybe not directly, which is this year I feel poets have been, poets who are part of more dominant communities are being asked maybe more than usual, more than before, to consider the space that they occupy and the ways also that they support writers who are from less dominant communities. And it sounds as if that is a question, like from what you've said so far, that that's a question that you've, you've thought about and that you do think about. And I wonder how much that has been on your mind this year um, as um, you've been writing and reading and dealing with look, everything I, else. I think, I mean, I think it's, it's, it's always on my mind, though, you know, I think, I think it's really important to remember that as a as a species as a as a collection of cultures we have so much to learn from each other so i've always tried to i suppose um you know read widely um and to continue to expand the breadth of my reading because it, because i want to learn from other poets and, and other ways of seeing things and other ways of doing things. I don't know if that's been more on my mind this year, though certainly, I mean, it's hard not to, like, I mean, racial justice has been a, a huge theme of the year. But I also think being a poet gives you, we, we come into contact with people from, um, minority groups, silence groups, um, more often, you know, I mean, 20 years ago when I first started writing, um, I met more gay people through, through poetry than anywhere else. I think I probably know more transgender and non-binary people than, than friends of mine who aren't poets. I, you know, I read more first nations literature and I'm in touch with those ideas, I think is probably more central to how we do things than, you know, than people outside poetry. You know, I think to give yeah. one example, I think, you know, I think so, some of, some of the anxiety some people feel, for instance, around pronouns is not wanting to, is, is not necessarily malicious, but not wanting to get it wrong accidentally and then getting in trouble for accidentally getting it wrong, for instance. But if you don't know any non-binary folks, then you're not going to have that experience of generosity and warmth for, for your efforts. And that you, you're not going to have experienced somebody taking in good faith, your respect of their identity and, and your efforts not to get that wrong, if that makes sense. Yeah, so you have um, no, um, like, no reference point. No, and you might just think it's the, the entire conversation is mediated through the incredibly partisanized version of what you see on Twitter or on news sites, not with actual real people. Um, you know, and, it, and I mean, frankly, it, it, it is uncomfortable feeling uncomfortable, but, I mean, I think... Be, that that feeling of uncomfortableness, you know, does alert you. It's a necessary part of recognizing, you know, other people's humanity. 
and those things. Mm. But I also think particularly as, you know, as a man who's been around poetry for maybe 20 years, this year's another step in another, in, in, in what has been a long journey. You know, I think there was a time when the, 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 the argument was on um, reading women poets and the centrality of um, women's voices to a canon, to a tradition, and the, the recognition of, 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 of women's voices that had been silenced. There's a poem in probably in my next book called um, On Being Decapitated by Bonnie Cassidy. And um, I was at, um, I was having pizza with Bonnie and her husband one night, and um, it, we'd been after a Punch and Whatman Christmas party, and um, I was spouting some um, dumb shit about um, how almost all writers in um, a kind of avant-garde tradition um, were sort of writing post-Rambeau, and and Bonnie just looked at me and said, "Well, what about Stein?" You know, as a person that doesn't read much, Stein doesn't have a lot of say in that discourse, but I didn't really have a lot to come back with that. But it's quite clearly when you reflect on it for about 10 seconds and you know about three things about Stein, that her influence over much of contemporary poetry, contemporary avant-garde poetry, is absolutely towering. And the idea that, that you know, that this, that this figure is not, you know, absolutely central and... That, that some parts of contemporary poetry are unthinkable without someone like Stein is absurd. But, you know, I mean, that's, that's a kind of blindness and a kind of ignorance, I think, that I've, I mean, quite obviously I must still have it, and I had it then when we had that conversation. But it's something that I'm sort of try to be conscious of and try to work against, I suppose. I love that. No. I can't wait to read that poem. What a great title. Yeah, I mean, I... She made me feel pretty small in about 10 seconds, but um, <laughs> that's that's why she's my friend and that's why I send stuff to her for her to read. Um, but I think, you, like, I think you want, you know, I think you want diverse readers, like not in any sort of abstract, touchy-feely, this makes the world better, but, like, th- that's how you understand humanity, by trying to understand how more people think about a given issue or a given thing. Mm. Um, what motivates them, you know, in terms of, of reading, I, when you spoke to, um, Ellen uh, and I love their book throat, um, mm. but Ellen was reading, I can't remember the poem, but describing the experience of counting Lisa Belia. And I went back, I went back and I thought, I remember, I remembered reading Lisa Belia at Union. And I remembered not really connecting with it. And I went back and I looked at my copy of Landbridge and the Lisa Blair poems have like notes um, scribbled all over them. Quite obviously I did connect with them. I'm not, I can't, I don't understand why I didn't, but then, you know, I, I go back and I, I found a copy of, um, well, Lisa's books are extraordinarily hard to find secondhand, but I got the UWAP sort of reprint selected sort of thing. And I mean, you know, those poems are just splitting my head right open. Oh, that's um, wonderful you know, that that conversation took you back to that. That's so great. Yeah, it, it was like that's been one of my great revelations in poetry in the last sort of three or four months was, was, was sort of first Ellen's book and then discovering Lisa Belia and 
um, the kind of reverence uh, and emphasis Ellen sort of placed on that tradition, you know, and that just reminds you and opens you up to reading even more poets that you, you know, you mightn't have read as much or read in the same way or read with the, the same sort of eyes. Mm. That's so great. I really want to bring us closer to your poetry because you're being so generous and talking about so many other poets, but I really, I really want to talk about your stuff. So would, would you like to read a poem for us to kind of get us in that zone? Do you have, um, do you have any requests? Oh, okay. So I, I'll tell you a little story at this point. So back in the, in the days when we could leave our houses, I went to, um, Hill of Content, and this was when your previous book, Content, was out, and I picked it up in that bookshop and opened it and read a couple of poems, as as one tends to do, for free, and I was like, (laughs) fucking hell, this guy's doing exactly what I want to do, but, like, so much better, and I put the book down (laughs) didn't buy it because I was so mad and I feel like there are there are poems also in hot take which I feel like they came to me and I tried to write them and then they were like okay it's not working here and then they went and found you and specifically um the one that I am thinking of is the poem I like you but the John Locke fan club can get fucked and I feel like (laughs) I tried to write this poem for about four months and I sent it to Toby at Overland and it had a, I, I called it giving me life um, and it didn't work and it totally fell apart. And obviously it had totally different words and everything, but there's something about this poem and there's a few of them in Hot Take like this that I'm like, oh, that's my, I, that's my baby. <laughs> I remember um, I, um, Michael published that in um, uh, Flash Cove and he was up in Brisbane for something and there was a one of his friends from Sydney was up. I can't remember his name. And um, Michael said something about, um, I guess I must have been mouthing off about something or other. But um, Michael said, oh, um, yeah, he, that's, he, he's the guy that wrote that poem. And he said, oh, it seems like the guy that would write that poem. Okay. I like you, but the John Locke fan club can get fucked. Let's have an inquiry into the red and black into the red and black block. Let's start from first principles. We're all dickheads. It's relative. Imagine how you'd feel if you were raised on the dark side of Pluto. Did you shower before you came to bed? I knew a police officer who arrested people for statistics. I knew a justice who jailed people for politicians. And when you wring your hands in the salty sea, It won't matter because we've abrogated all responsibility. Fathers end worlds and we hot take on their efficacy. I think that's a poem that probably nearly actually didn't make it out of draft. Really? Um, Who knows? I I mean, sometimes I, I look at these poems and you quite obviously like, you look at them and you think, you must have had a reason for writing that, but... You know, I don't remember writing them. I don't remember, you know, I'm I'm guessing, I mean, perennially it seems like the Daily Telegraph is waging war on the the football fans of the Western Sydney Warriors. 
This is the Western Western Sydney Wanderers. So I guess that's probably where it where it started from. And then obviously there's a there's a rage in that that animates a lot of my work that I don't like. I, I don't think a lot of moral posturing is is valid. I think that you it's hard to it's hard to reflect critically on the world unless we foreground our own complicity in so much of the so much of so much of what is wrong with the world. I don't think that many of us I mean, maybe I'm only speaking for white men. Maybe I'm only speaking for settlers. Maybe, but I mean, you could say this about uh, about people from from a lot of cultures. Like, we, it's it's hard to stand outside the problems and simply say that's X's fault. That's X's thing. We all have a have a role in in building a more just and equitable world, I suppose. And, and maybe I'm just speaking for myself. Um, I, I probably am. I'm, I'm loath to speak for other people, but I don't think that I can sit here and, and criticise what I think is wrong with the world without acknowledging my own place in the machine. Mm. Yeah, and, and that brings me to another of the, the threads that I picked up in Hot Take, which I think goes to that notion of what you described in terms of foregrounding complicity there's a really strong sense in this book that you are interested in understanding and challenging and unpicking notions of masculinity but you do it in such a way that is right on this line I feel like there's a there's a poem called active shooter that starts a gunman is a gunman is a gunman there there are lines in this book that I feel like if you wanted to misunderstand them you might think, what's up with Liam? You know, and I'm yeah. sitting here, I'm looking at um, your, your bio on Red Room and the bio photo that you have is, is yourself with a, a cigar kind of leaning back and you have this <laughs> open shirt. And I think, like, to me, it's obvious that that is a huge joke. Like, you're, you're yeah, taking yeah. the piss. But I don't know, like... It might not be obvious to everybody that that is that is what that's no, what you're I think, doing. I think I think that's fair though. On that p- picture, I would say is I don't take very good pictures. And <laughs> back when I needed that one, probably years ago, that was probably like the only good one that I could easily find. Right. Um, now I have nice headshots from Tim Gray that I just use over and over again. But um, I mean, I think you know, I think I'm I feel different from from a lot of poets, um, possibly since I've just discovered this, um, about Ellen, to be honest, um, with the exception of Ellen, but like, I, I really enjoy playing sport. I really enjoy, you know, most of my mates, they're just ordinary Aussie blokes. Like I'm the only poet in you know, amongst my, my mates. I mean, they all read books, et cetera, et cetera. But we get together and um, go to um, the footy, for instance, or, you know, we'll get together and talk about the footy and we don't have what you might stereotypically call intellectual discussions with a, with a lot of my friends, for instance, um, the, my non-poetry friends. 
you know, and certainly talking about being a poet at footy training, for instance, is, is something I'm deeply uncomfortable with. You know, I feel like that's not something that happens there. But at the same time, you know, everyone sort of knows that, that that's what I do. I mean, I don't, I, don't think that they're, I don't think that they're mutually exclusive. You know, and I think if more men read poetry, it probably wouldn't be a bad thing. I think if more men read books, it probably wouldn't be a bad thing. C- circling, circling back to the poem, though, I, I mean, if, if people find parts of my work offensive, that's because the things that I'm writing about are offensive. Right. Like, you know, I wrote Active Shooter on my lunch break at work as news of the Orlando shooting was was occurring. Mm. And I find something grossly offensive from every end of the spectrum about the pageantry of opinion, of not just the thoughts and prayers, but everything that flows after that as though this thing isn't going to happen again. You know, as though Las Vegas wasn't going to happen, as though it hadn't happened before. You know, I mean, these things keep happening and I want to use language that is shocking because quite clearly the discourse around some of this stuff just isn't shocking enough. There there seems to be a space within which we're able to to synthesize and process these things and allow them to keep going on. For sure. I mean, Requiem is another dream, um, another poem that does that. Um, you start with a, a sock falling from the washing line and then ends with an aid worker's throat being cut. And, and that's, that's a tough, that's a tough ending for a poem that starts with socks on the line, but it's tough subject matter. It's real subject matter. And it's, it can be included. Your poems can hold these, these things and it's not it's not easy to do and I mean in, well I mean the interesting thing is that Requiem is actually um a poem um for my my father when he died right and we were quite estranged and he'd had dementia for a number of years and before that we were we were quite estranged and he wasn't a particularly nice man at all but it was about trying to, to, to reckon with that. But I think I guess that this, the brutality of the world is often, is often with me. And so it's hard not that language. I think, you know, I think a lot of my poems are poems of protest, even if they are about personal things. One of the other things that is noteworthy about Hot Take is that you name check quite a few contemporaries. You've got Pam Brown, Toby Fitch, Fiona Heil. Do you see yourself as part of a, a school or a tradition right now? Um, I see myself as part of a generation, maybe. Mm-hmm. I mean, I feel like I feel like that's probably amongst the things that might annoy people about this interview. That that kind of thing might, but I mean. I've got a bunch of friends who I all sort of came of age with or, you know, we were about the same age. You know, I do think that there are generations of Australian poetry, if for nothing else than poets are roughly the same age and the same stage of their careers. 
And then I do, I mean, I do think that, you know, I, I, I think probably and pretty much all of my academic friends will poo-poo the broad strokes of this, but I do think that there are roughly, certainly amongst settler poetics in this country, sort of two, two broad traditions. And probably, actually, I'll probably have to say white poets in this country, but there are two broad positions. I mean, you might call it the, the post-68 poets and the, the Lehman Gray poets might be a, a way of characterising it. And it's, you know, it's not, it's not neat to say that. I mean, there is, there's an incredible amount of personal in, in say, John Forbes's poetry, who might be part of, you know, the experimental avant-garde 68 tradition. And there's an incredible amount of invention and experimentation in Les Murray's work. You know, so I don't think those, those two categories hold up especially well to scrutiny, but I do think that they're, they're broad schemas that are kind of useful for talking about poetry in. Mm. It's, sort of, it's sort of inescapable, even as much as we'd love to corrupt it. It just keeps coming back. And I think, you know, I, I, I spoke sort of about the need to, um, to read broadly um, earlier. And I, I think, I mean, for me, it's, it's, it's less about um, reading more broadly across, say, genders or cultures. And it's more broadly reading across styles um, and types of poetry. And for a long time, I was resistant to, I don't know, say, Les Murray to... Um, you know, there are a lot of poets that I considered sort of more, again, this is a basically a meaningless term, but I hope people understand what I mean, establishment, say, and then more experimental. And I wouldn't read the, the more establishment kinds because that might be what I'm less interested in. But as I'm getting older, I'm learning that, you know, I mean, there's a tremendous amount to learn from, from say, Les Murray. Uh, for a long time, I was resistant to, um, you know, uh, say Robert Frost or people like that, where I think that there's Gwen Harwood's one I'm reading at the moment who I didn't um, connect with. And I think there's a lot to be learnt from reading more broadly in that way, which I haven't always really done. Yeah, I, I was exactly the same. And just last year, finally sat down with, um, the selected of Robert Adamson's. And I was like, well, well, this is great. Like, this is, this is amazing. What was my problem? <laughs> well, it's, funny, it's funny, actually. I came to Robert Adamson, though, the other way as part of the 68, not as part of Birds and the Hawkesbury and everything else. Um, which, right. Again, I mean, it's just a matter of where you're sitting and how you look at things, which kind of is why some of these terms are not entirely useful or accurate. Yeah, they fall apart pretty quickly as well, which is great. I am aware that I have I've kept you for a little while now, but I wanted to come back to something that we were talking about before we actually started recording. And you've mentioned that you, you enjoy the podcast, which is so great, and that you have that feeling which I have with my favourite podcasters, which is that we're sometimes in conversation and I really, you mentioned that there are things that I say sometimes that you don't agree with. And I just thought it, I would, I'd love to give you the opportunity now to like take me to task. <laughs> well, no, no, it's not so much that, but it's, 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 it's different perspectives. So, I mean, I think the example that's probably fresh in my head at the moment was from a couple of weeks ago when you were talking about women and mental illness and poetry. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I was thinking, I was just thinking, Alice, 
this stuff happens to men too. That, um, you know, there's an idea that poets were supposed, male poets were supposed to be a little bit mad. And um, I struggle with my mental health. And, you know, there was a time in my life when I thought that that was a, was a necessary part of, of being a poet. Um, you know, and I'm a guy that, again, this is a poet that I've never read that I, sh- that I really want to read that I was resistant to because they're a part of a, the mainstream side, but Sylvia Platt, you know, you, you, you feel this, this weight that, that mental illness is something that, that impacts on male poets too. Um, for instance. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then I think the other one is, um, probably an anxiety about, um, what, what poetry is and, 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 and what your, your place in it is. Um, you know, I, I'm, I'm somebody that spends a lot of time thinking about the health of Australian poetry, what, what is essential to, to a good literary culture and what you've created with this podcast is, you know, I mean, it's an incredible resource. It's, uh, an incredible forum for people to think about poems, um, both when you're just the solo hosting and then, um, you know, I mean, Michael Farrell is a good friend of mine and I have rarely if ever heard him talk as well about his own work as he did on your podcast. Um, you know, I think the episode with Ellen was just was brilliant. Um, I'd never heard of Daniel Swain before um, you interviewed him and I've got a review of his book now, his chat book coming out in Rabbit. Um, oh, because, great. That's so great. That's I mean, awesome. That, that, that book just, everyone should just go buy that. Huge, yeah, holy huge, shit. Yeah, what the hell. Huge, huge <laughs> shout out to David Musgrave for the Slow Loris um, series. It's absolutely brilliant. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, I think all of those things are incredibly rich, but then at the same time, as somebody that writes entirely my whole life under the star of Frank O'Hara, mm. you know, I, I like, I was listening to that and I was like, oh, nah, you guys are wrong about Frank. I can't remember specifics, but I'm like, I have my own opinions about Frank there and, you know, but it's, it's, it, it, I just love to be in dialogue with, with poetry. Um, and I think you're your podcast creates a space for that. I think it also is incredibly democratic. Um, you know, I think for a lot of reasons, um, poetry runs the risk of, of, of being, if maybe not elitist, because I'm, I'm wary of that word because I don't, I think that there's a level of specialism that, you know, um, any art form demands of its practitioners and there's a whole wealth of learning that goes into it. But at the same time, that doesn't have to be at the expense of ordinary readers. We shouldn't be setting poetry up as something that not everyone can read, you know. And I think your podcast invites people into um, into poetry in, in those ways. I really hope so. I mean, yeah, thank you for saying all that. I didn't mean for it to become <laughs> I wasn't fishing for compliments, but like, no, yeah. no, I mean, but I'm a genuine fan. I mean, I, I still haven't gone back and read Joanna Krieger yet, but I'm like, ah, I never heard of this person. Ah. Sounds like something to check out. Like, well, she was friends with Bob Adamson, turns out. They hung out at her place in, in California. Um, but yeah, uh, 
I think it's just taken me such a long time to to, and it's probably still not entirely happened. But like, I started this podcast with a huge chip on my shoulder about not being, uh, not having studied creative writing, not having you know grown up in a literary community or a literary family, and it's just taken me a really long time to realize exactly what you're saying. Like, you know, the House of Poetry, it's it's a galaxy. It's not even a house, and um, the poems themselves are what matters, is what you said at the start. And, and, and I yeah. think, well, I think one thing, and I think this is probably the great failing of um, poetry anywhere, but you know, I can really only speak for poetry in Australia, but there's not a good feedback loop. No. You know, you, like, and one thing that I definitely um, really try and promote and I think is really important and is really absent is if you read something by someone and it connects you, it moves you, um, let them know. Yeah, I always try to do that, yeah. We, we live in a world where you might sell, I don't, I don't have no idea how many books I sell, but I don't think it's very many, but you know, I spent years writing those books. I spent four days a week, like I made countless sacrifices to write those books. And it's nice to hear back that your your work, you know, connects with people. Yep, yep. Write, um, write the email. Take take the 10 minutes to write the email and say, hey, I read your book, like this poem, even if you only liked one of the poems. And that, I think, is what is what we need more of. Yeah, for um, sure. It means that, if, like, if we have that feedback loop, a positive feedback loop, it makes it possible too that we might be able to have more robust critical conversations because we know that like, yeah, you know, I like and respect this that you've done, didn't like that bit and you can yeah. say that. Yeah, and I think the other thing is, and I mean, I, you know, I mean, canons are incredibly problematic but one thing that um, poetry kind of lacks, and again, prize, prize, prize culture doesn't create this either and it's problematic for its own reasons but we don't have we like a critical understanding of we don't have a good sense of critical understanding of shared texts that um you know we could all read and we could all talk about i mean i think there are some works where that have been very widely read and um people can have those conversations about i mean i think you know, um, Alison Whitaker's black work was very mm. widely read. Mm-hmm. Um, and people can talk about it. Michael's work, and I and I and I I, I, I firmly believe this uh, that a canon that is exclusionary is not only problematic because it's exclusionary; it's just extraordinarily dishonest. Right. You know, a, a '90s canon that doesn't include Lisa Belia is extraordinarily dishonest. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, a canon that doesn't include Lionel Fogarty or Michelle Carl or, you know, writers of diverse backgrounds is incredibly dishonest because these people are, these writers are central to, to our tradition. And then I think the other thing I would, I'm quite passionate about is like, you know, reaching out and supporting younger writers. Um, because I think, you know, I mean, you can write a kick up, you might not write all your kick ass poems at, 22 or 27 or whatever or you know even if you're starting late at 52 but you know getting that that feedback to to keep going that that you're doing something good that that you're getting places is so important yeah um yeah absolutely and then just fundamentally if if a poet's work gives you joy if it helps improve your day then then tell them 
Well, much as much as I was pissed off that day when I found your book in Hill of Content, your your work definitely gives me joy as well. Well, I mean, the other <laughs> thing is too, I'm I'm in pretty competitive in a healthy way I like to think so when my friends write stuff that I think is better than what I write like that to me is inspiration to go back and work harder absolutely it's a it's a great thing it's like you've got to lift your game now yeah yeah you know when Jaya was giving his Jaya Savage was giving his book launch the other day I was like and you know I mean Jaya's one of my oldest friends in poetry I was like and some of those poems was kind of like I loved the poems I was also kind of annoyed because they were better than mine but then I'm like oh well I have to go and what what is this poem not doing enough of what could it do more of what is wrong with this phrase where am I being lazy what work haven't I done and I think strong work particularly by by my peers is um you know it that's that's really important to me and I mean Mm. to me the most joy and I don't think I'm necessarily typical about here I mean a lot of my friends write um books that could roughly be construed of as projects or have, you know, grander schemes or, um, well, this is, um, <laughs> something I objected to on this podcast is when, um, Great. Stuart, Stuart Cook was talking about, um, uh, critical, uh, um, I guess theoretical constructs or critical constructs behind poems and, um, you know, a broader sense of, um, how uh, a broader framework for a poem and I'm very much a person that lives poem to poem I suppose you know every every new poem um creates its own rules and demands its own form and demands its own structure you know and that's something I felt very strongly in Ellen's book Throat yeah um, yeah you know I live from poem to poem which means that when I sit down to mostly mostly when I sit down to write I don't always know what will happen and then those days when you sit down to write with no good ideas no idea what's coming may or if anything will and then you walk away after 15 or 20 minutes or 30 minutes or whatever with the first draft of a sonnet and you're like holy shit that just didn't exist in the world Mm -hmm. 30 minutes ago like I had no idea that um that 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 was coming yeah. Um, yeah, that is a great feeling. And that's, I mean, that's that. It's that feeling that I that I live for. I think the last thing I'd say is that, like, one of again coming back to not needing time is that you know, I mean, poets are incredibly. We are incredible. We don't have very many readers, which means that 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 on one hand is bad because we'll never be able to have a full time job just writing poetry, or I mean, a tiny, tiny, tiny proportion portion of people will. But like it also means we're entirely we're almost entirely free from market pressures. Yeah, you know I've got books that friends have published that I think are excellent books that they've basically just you know printed out A4 pages and stapled them together. Mm-hmm. Um, and we just I can't think of any other art form that is as independent from the market as is free from the market. Which means that all of your choices, absolutely every single choice, can be aesthetic. Yeah, I love that. You know, you don't have to worry about readers at all. Um, obviously, 
going back to what I said, you should always listen to readers because that's who you're writing for. But you don't have to be dictated by the need to appeal to many of them. You can have belief in your own vision. I love that so much. I might I might get you to close out then, given that with um, if you can go back to your copy of Hot Take, uh, Modern Love, your poem for Greta Gerwig. Oh, I, the day I wrote that, I um, I was single and I was um, I was dating people on on Tinder and I'd, I'd met a girl and it didn't go anywhere and I was a little bit heartbroken. But I was thinking about that that scene in um, what's the Francis Ha where yeah. um, Greta Gerwig's sort of dancing along, um, listening to David Bowie's Modern Love. And um, it was just making, it just, it just made me feel, feel better. Mm. Um, so this one's Modern Love for Greta Gerwig. It's weeks since you've slept and it's not fun to stay up all night tapping these eye notes of poetry just thinking about is bad for you. But it's what you do to take you back to a Walkman on a Southside bus, ducking under the Dutton Park rail bridge like a tall man in an old castle. Tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow are as far away as yesterday and yesterday and the Friday before. And when God does speak to you, he does it in your telephone voice. The convertible's kaput on our canyon cruise. Karina's cowboy boots kick out at the hubcap's full moon a drip pot in a typhoon and we write what we want because the three readers we do have head straight to the anthologies instead. Mm -hmm.